Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to a Believe Podcast. I'm your host, John Hoisenstein, and this is the Guitar Life. Today I'm talking with Carl Verheyen, one of America's top guitarists, super studio musician, super recording artist, and a member of the super group, Super Tramp. Let's find out what Carl's been doing lately. When you're 17, I jumped up quick. It seemed like a cinch to steal some gasoline. About that time, a light went on in the shed behind the station. Screwed on the gas cap. I don't need a roadmap to ruin my vacation. Like an outlaw rolling. I don't need no fuss. No, no. Are you there, Carl? I hope I hope we're okay with um, our connection. So I can hear the guitar. You sound good. Okay, thanks. I'll back up a little. That's cool. You chose to play the guitar. I love it. I just had a, a, a Fender Tremolux amp worked on and a Fender Showman amp worked on, and uh, so I brought I brought them in into my little home studio here because they they live out in the garage in big road cases. And uh, even my wife said, wow, that sounds really good as she was walking by. So <laughs> that's kind of cool. I get the same kind of I get the same kind of narration and oratory around my house. If it's in her face, you know, she'll tell me whether it sounds good or not. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, I got so. the same critic going over here. Right on. Hey, you know, uh, I've been looking at your career and uh, there's no way we can categorize you. You got your. Uh, you got your paw on every pie, it seems like. Uh, but I'd really like to like do a little history and uh, then get stuck into what you're, you might be doing currently. I'm really fascinated by how you got uh, to where you're at today, so I hope we get to talk about that to a, a yeah, certain yeah. degree. Is, is that cool with you? Sure, yeah. Well, let me, let me put this app on standby so I'm not temp tempted to noodle. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can doodle while we talk. Uh, I think uh, that's a cool idea. Yeah, well, I'll get back into it. You know, I'll just give you a quick history. So, uh, born and raised in in uh, I mean, born in L.A., Santa Monica, raised in Pasadena, and um, started playing the guitar on my 11th birthday. I got a guitar and a lesson on the same day, and then. Um, let's see. I played in a few little bands and high school bands and stuff like that. But when I was like a senior in high school, I got a, um, my parents were having dinner at a restaurant in Pasadena. And as we were walking out, I heard a guy singing and playing in the, in the bar. Yeah. So I said, how do I get that gig? And I went back and auditioned um, for the guy, uh, played two or three songs, you know, like Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison. It was right in that 72, that era. Right. And, um, and uh, the guy gave me the gig. But he said, uh, he said, but you are 18, aren't you? And I said, no. And he said, come back when you're 18. So a couple <laughs> months later, three months later, I came back and he, he gave me two nights a week, Sunday and Monday. But then he eventually moved me to Tuesday through Saturday. And man, I was doing great, making 75 bucks a night, living at home, you know, um, 
going to Pasadena City College in the day, and I was playing in another band called Mad Shadow, and we we played opposite Van Halen quite a bit, you know, at PCC, Pasadena City College. And then um, then I got um, then I then I remember uh, meeting a guy in that bar who was an older guy. Said, "Hey, man." I like the way you play. Would you like to get together sometime? And I said, yeah, because he was a guitar player, an older guy. And I went over to his house, and he had a he had some music he opened up, and the first chord was F major 7, right? The second chord was D minor 7 flat 5. And this is how it went down. I'll grab an acoustic. Right yeah, here. yeah, keep it going. I like it. He said, uh, so he had a D minor 7 flat 5, so I said, well, here's... Mm -hmm. Here's a D minor. Is it this? And he goes, and then I said, is it this? One, two, three, four, five. You just flat that. And he goes, well, there's a better way to finger it. Of course, this is a richer version. Of course, this has the nice open string. This is cool with a, a flat five on the top. Of course, you can put the flat five in the bass. It's nice to have a seventh on top or in the bottom. You know, this is a nice voicing. Not a lot of people use. This is a really common voicing, but most people put the bass note there. This is the same as an F minor six. So that means every F minor six is going to be. So my head just kind of exploded. Who was that I guy? I think it might have been Larry Koontz, who's Dave. Oh, yeah, of course. No, no Dave, Koontz, Dave Koontz, who's Larry's dad. You know, uh, Larry Koontz is a pretty well-known guitar player around here in L.A. Yeah, yeah, I've seen articles world. about him, yeah. Yeah, he's a great player. And I think it might have been his dad who was living in Pasadena. You know, they lived in Pasadena. And uh, anyway, so I started down that long, dark jazz highway. And I went, I went back to Boston and... Uh, like just because of a girlfriend. And then I ended up going to Berkeley for three months. I ended up going on the road with Max Roach, which was a real eye. Yeah. How did that come about? I was going to ask you, I mean, when I met you in Newport, um, you told me that you had been playing with Mac, Max Roach, you know, and sitting across the room from me is this young guy, you know, living in Newport beach. And he says, Max Roach. And I always equate him with, you know, Miles Coast. Davis, Coach, yeah. yeah, Miles yeah, Davis, yeah. John Coltrane, jazz legend, by right, the way. Yeah, yeah. And here, here well, you were playing with, and I, and I thought to myself, this guy's a very mature guitar player for <laughs> how young he is. What the heck is going on here with this guy? Well, the thing about Max, I mean, he had a jazz workshop at University of Massachusetts, UMass. Okay. And it was this upstairs event, and so did Archie Shep. And I ended up going... Uh, to both of their workshops and then max needed a sub for a couple gigs he had coming up one at amherst college and one up in new hampshire and uh he, the the regular guy was a friend of mine he was going to europe on tour with somebody so uh i filled in just did a couple gigs with him but they were amazing you know just amazing gigs max uh, he had so many little tidbits of advice that I'm still working on things, you know, still yeah. working on. I was going to say as a mentor, was he very open and, uh, yeah, friendly? Definitely. Yeah. In other words, he would say to you something like, Hey man, you really need to work on your stance. <laughs> I said, what's that? And he goes, it's, it's how you carry yourself on stage. He goes, people don't know that you're playing the a harmonic minor scale over an E seventh chord. They don't really care. they, they get more out of just how you feel, how you look, how you groove. And he started naming people like Miles, who had a real introspective yeah. stare down. Dizzy Gillespie, who lifted the trumpet high and then kind of cocked it and came out with a flurry of notes. Coltrane, who leaned forward. Sonny Rollins, who was always moving and swinging. 
I mean, he had, he said even Wes Montgomery, the way he sat and the way he played, he, Bird, you know, he had a big gut with his horn sitting on the little horn sitting on the end of his tummy. I think when uh, Robin Ford got the gig with Miles Davis, they hadn't even spoken yet. And the first wow. thing that Miles asked him was, what are you wearing tonight? Oh, yeah. That's yeah, great. they didn't even yeah. talk music. It was all about yeah. appearance and about the demeanor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's funny stuff. <laughs> Anyway, so, yeah, then, then uh, I came back from being in, in, in uh, the East Coast after a while, maybe a year, and then I met some guys who were playing jazz down at the beach, down in Newport Beach, and uh, that's where we met, right? Yeah. And uh, then, and then, so I was doing that, you know, up to five nights a week and really staying busy doing that, but uh, I started to break into a little recording session scene down there. There's a few studios. Sure. And then it seemed to me that Kurt Lyon Studio. Kurt, yeah, that, yeah. That one at JEL and uh, there was United Audio or something, some some other one. There Costa was a Mesa, handful yeah. of them. Yeah, so so I um Can I, I just eventually... uh, interrupt you just for one second? So when I saw you playing in the living room, we were just having a little, you know, uh jam, you know, with two guitars and look checking each other out. Mm-hmm. And it was jazz, right? And then when I saw you at the Studio Cafe, which is just down the street from there, it was more of a rock fusion thing. And that really right. caught me off guard. I said, this guy's versatile. This guy's just not, ah, cool. he's just not yeah. a one-trick pony. He's moved, you know, to, into another bag here, you know? Yeah, well, my, my thinking was like this. I was this, I was this, you know, blinders-on jazz guy for quite a, quite a while, uh, maybe six or seven years. And a couple of my friends, John Ferraro, remember him? The oh, drummer? yeah, he's a great drummer. Yeah, so he moved up to L.A. And, and got the gig with Larry Carlton. And then Dave Murata, my bass player for many, many years. Uh, Dave, Dave, uh, same thing, they moved in together. And I realized I'm kind of a big fish in the studio scene in Orange County. I need to move up where it's challenging and stuff like that. So I moved up to um, North Hollywood, lived a block around the, around the block from those guys. And one day, I've told this story a thousand times, one day I was driving in my car down um, down uh, Riverside Drive, right near, on Laurel Canyon, right near Riverside Drive, and I heard, you know, punching through the radio stations, and I heard this amazing Joe Walsh solo come on the radio, and it just caught me off guard. It was an Eagle song called Those Shoes, and it was shocking how far rock guitar had come since I sort of left off in the early seventies with Aerosmith and stuff like that. Um, you know, I'd kind of left off going, yeah, this is sort of the more of the stones. I can do that. You know, I could play stairway to heaven and crossroads and all this kind of stuff. But it was, it was when I heard that Joe Walsh solo that I went, wow, listen to the emotion and, uh, and how, how uh, committed he is to getting that across. And, it was kind of this little epiphany that happened to me where I, I pulled the car over and went, you know what? I can play, I can play 26 choruses on Stella by Starlight, but man, this is, this is the music of my people right here. And then I said, but so is country music and so is bluegrass and so is blues. And why haven't, why haven't I listened to Mike Bloomfield in a long time? And, you know, I like Albert King and I like Albert Lee and I like, uh, Alvin Lee, <laughs> you know, yeah, so no, ten years I just, after, I just kinda, yeah, I just kind of realized that great album, Undead, by ten years after that live. Yeah, at the, yeah. oh, that's a yeah, exactly. That was a, a huge influence of, of my childhood. Yeah, so uh, 
Can and, I ask uh, you one question real quickly? Was there anybody in your family when you were really young that was a musician as well that kind of like uh, made it okay for you to try out as a musician in your career? <laughs> I mean, my, my, my dad played the drums as a kid and my mom played piano, but both of my grandparents were piano players. Oh, okay. And uh, they were really good. They that explains really a lot right there. Yeah. Both yeah. grandmothers on both sides of the family and, and, uh, and my dad and mom were really supportive. My dad said, whatever you do for a living, make sure it makes you happy. And that was a beautiful thing. To yeah, say. yeah, that's what you need when you're uh, experimenting with life, huh? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, <laughs> the way the way it all turned out was uh, it just that moment opened up my mind. And I just started to I got out my Les Paul and my 335 and just started to play other kinds of music. Sure. And. The way I would practice, what I, I would I would say, I'm going to work on this Albert King solo until I can phrase it exactly along with that, and then I'd be bored with Albert King, and I'd say, now I'm going to work on this this uh, um, you know something completely different, Chet Atkins thing, you know what I mean? And then I'd be working on Chet stuff for a while, and uh, all of a sudden, um, yeah. It was never a practice regimen like 15 minutes on classical guitar, 15 minutes on You, went, you went with where your heart was going. Yeah, exactly. Just yeah. exactly that. Can I can I ask you something? Uh, you were talking about school in Pasadena. I mean, where was the uh, where was the technical, you know, advancement of yourself? You know, where did that come in? Where did you decide that you were going to be really technically proficient uh, enough to you know be a good studio musician? How did that come about? Well, I think the you. thing for, for, stu for the studio, it came about with just my desire to be authentic in styles, you know, the different styles, because that's really that's really what a good studio musician can do. He can play different styles. I remember doing a session one time where uh, they said it's a country date. Just bring a Telecaster and a Fender Princeton. Right. So I get there, and there's another guy with a Telecaster and a Fender Princeton and a cowboy hat. Uh-oh. <laughs> and, and so, you know, we did a, we did a country version. Then they, they wanted a rock version, so I pulled out a Strat. Then they wanted even more rock, so I pulled out a Les Paul. And we just kind of went around this wheel doing 10 different versions. One of them ended up sounding like the police. Uh, you know, it went all around. Okay, the next day on the session, the guy with the cowboy hat was sent home. He was, I mean, he was... We don't need you anymore. Anyway, I did the rest of the record because this guy could play down one style. Right. And I, and I could play down all the styles. And I've seen that happen with hard rock players. There was this one kind of famous hard rock guy that I did a, a session with. And, but, the, but the music sounded like it was uh, I'm playing in 6 eight. I was playing. So this guy could not play in six, eight time. So they wiped all his tracks and sent him home, and I, I overdubbed all his parts. So, okay, there so you the have studio, it. Yeah, the studio musician thing came about for me mostly as a as a style guy, a guy that that you know took all these styles styles seriously.
one day I was um, down at the Musicians Union, and I ran into a good friend of mine, Gordon Goodwin, who was a composer, arranger, and he came over to me and goes, hey, man, I just want you to hear it from me. I got a big session this Wednesday, but I didn't call you because uh, there's a lot of reading. We got a double session, and there's just a lot of music to cover, and you're just not as strong of a reader as this other guy. And that other guy was Grant Geisman, who's since become a good friend of mine. Oh, he played with well, uh, Feel So Good. Uh, yeah. yeah. Those guys so are anyway, friends of mine. Yeah, so I just, I just um, that kicked my Chuck ass. Chuck Mangione. Right, Chuck, yeah. yeah. I just, that just kicked my butt. I just said, man, I got to learn to read better than I can read. So at the time I was taking, I was trading classical guitar lessons. This guy was teaching me classical and I was teaching him how to play the blues, right? And bend notes and stuff. And I said to him, man, I only wish I was a better reader. I wish there was a class we could go to and take like reading lessons, you know? And he goes, let's just start our own class. He goes, let's just go back. He goes, let's go down to uh, Baxter Northrop, this music store, and each of us buy about $75 worth of books. And the other two requirements are a metronome and a coffee pot. And he goes, uh, you know, your house Monday, my house Tuesday, your house. So we read five days a week for about six, seven months. And even after two weeks, we were better. Yeah. You know, we were reading duets. We were reading the same stuff. But it all has to do with, you know, following, making your eyes follow along. You know, make, make, in other words, with a metronome, you got to just keep reading ahead. Because when you're reading by yourself, you go, oh, what was that bar 28? Sure. And this, so this was incredible. When I came out of that little six-month period, I was a good sight reader. And that allowed me to get into TV film and movies and jingles and all the things that are, you know, not just chord charts, all the stuff you need to read. So, so that on, studio yeah. career, that studio career really started around 1980, 81. But then in 85, I auditioned for Supertramp and I got that gig. You know? Yeah, how did that... Uh... European connection happened for you because I know you traveled throughout Europe with your own bands, but at some point you'd have had to make some sort of uh, connection in order to make that transcontinental leap. How did that come about? Well, the first thing that happened was um, I was just out doing a record date on the west side of L.A. And, at a studio I've never been to for an artist. I don't even remember her name. And, but the engineer was a British guy, and we, we hit it off real well. We liked each other. And I said... Uh, let me get your number. And he got mine. Well, apparently somebody from Supertramp management and him from England, you know, we're talking that night and said, yeah, we've auditioned 18 guitar players. We can't find anybody. <laughs> and he goes, well, I heard a guy today you might like. So I went, I got the call like at nine 30 at night to audition the next morning at nine or maybe it was 10. And I uh, went up there. Um, Rick Davies house was in Encino uh, he had a big backyard studio, a big mansion with a studio that was a big guest house. Thing. Oh, so he was uh, he was located in the, the L.A. area. Yeah, they were they were all pretty much in L.A. at that time. The, the Super Trampers was Roger uh, Hodson still in the band. So they were looking for somebody to replace him. Oh, okay. And that was that was me and a and a keyboard player who could sing like him and play the keyboard. You're so, you're you're replacing was, big boots there, buddy. Yeah. Oh, that guy's amazing. What a writer. What a singer. You know. So they, 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 um, so I got that gig and, you know, did a four month North American tour and then a four month European tour. And, uh, I believe when I got back from that, 
I had this little band going with Chad Wackerman on drums and uh, a little I, I band with a big drummer. Big drummer, yeah. And we <laughs> we were we were called Gecko, and that went on for a while. But we were just too rock world and too too rock for the jazzy world fusion world, and so it disbanded and just kind of fizzled out. And then I put my own thing together, just a trio, and I got a record deal here in L.A. A little company called CMG. And the first thing that happened, or maybe the, yeah, then we got another, then we did a second album. And then when we did our third album, it was a little more bluesy. Now we're into the 90s. And, um, you know, I'm doing a lot of studio work. I'm doing Super Tramp occasionally. And uh, and I'm starting this band. And, I mean, I had this band. And by the third album, it was a little bluesy. We got asked to play the Long Beach Blues Festival, and on the bill was this guy named Walter Trout. You know him? Oh, I know or, Walter. Or, sure, I've done yeah. shows with him. Yeah, great guy. Yeah. So, so Walter came over to me after our set and goes, "Man, I really like the way you play." And he said, uh, "I'm going to Europe on Monday. Give me one of your CDs, and I'll give it to my record company president." But I got to warn you, I've given him 50 CDs, and he's never signed anybody. So don't get your hopes up. So I gave him a CD. He went to Europe. Two weeks later, I got the call from the record company president saying, love it, want to release it, but you have to agree to tour in Europe. And I said, yes, please. I would love to. So that was 97 when I did my first I remember. Tour. I was yeah. following you right then. I remember uh, I remember your enthusiasm about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got to talk to you right, just right around that time. Yeah. That's yeah, fantastic. That was, really, that was a good scene because, you know, First gig yeah. in Europe was in Copenhagen, and I'm walking down the street seeing posters of me. I didn't even know they made posters of me, you know, and they had them all spread out. And we had a really good, you know, it was a small place called the Mojo, but it was full. And then the following year, I went back and played the Pumplehuset or the Pump House or whatever. And that was much bigger and full. And then the following year, we opened for Johnny Winter, which was an even bigger, bigger venue. So, you know, that's kind of how the European thing worked. And then my agent kind of lost the clue. I was getting blue, booked in a, a bunch of bad rock clubs and blues clubs. And when I changed agents, uh, it, it became a much better thing. Can, you know? can I ask you something? I noticed that this Essential Blues album that you did is just sort of recent within the last couple of years. But uh, you're talking about blues clubs and about a blues interest back when you first started touring in Europe. And I've been listening to some of these records. And uh, did you have to, like, integrate blues stuff with uh, some of your original stuff that you have on your CDs? Is that what you were trying to do or what? How do no, you, how I, do you I, go about I, looking I at mean, that? I mean, what it was, that third album was pretty bluesy. It just, it was all originals, but... Uh, is that had, Slang had, Justice? Was that your... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slang Justice is the one that... And then the next one, Slingshot, had a few bluesy things on it. It's always been a big part of my music. I've never abandoned... Uh... Let, let, let me stop you right there. I'm going to talk for a second here, because I've been listening to your Essential Blues album, and you remind me of uh, Guitar Player Magazine, Guitar World, Premier Guitar. Let me tell you why. Because they say 
Albert King and his flying V, and then they say B.B. King and his ES-355, and then they say Albert Collins and his Telecaster, and all these guitar companies and guitar magazines just rave on about the equipment, right? But they never mention the fact that these guys are great singer-entertainers. Right. And listening to your uh, Essential Blues album, I had no idea what a great singer you are. and. uh, I, I think you should be doing, uh, you know, big blues uh, festivals and big blues concerts. Uh, you're right. You're right up there. I, I'm really, uh, oh, I'm, man. I'm very well, honored I mean, to uh, to uh, say that, actually. That's cool. I, I really appreciate it. I mean, you know, there's a blues edition issue of Guitar Player magazine, and they, they, they interview a lot of different people that are completely committed to the blues. I was talking to another guitar player friend of mine yesterday. I hear I what's said, coming here. Yeah, if you could be Stevie Ray Vaughan and only play the blues and only play in those three keys for the rest of your life, would that satisfy you? And for me, the answer is not really. I, I want to be able to, <laughs> I want to be able to play a more sophisticated stuff. I mean, blues can be very sophisticated, but on the other hand, I want to be able to play other styles. You know, of course. Um, I just went to Nashville last week and did a country record for just I played on a country record with with Brent Mason, who's a brilliant country. No, guy. I know. I know him. Yeah, he does it on a Stratocaster a lot of times. He used well, to... mostly mostly it's that telly of his, that silver telly. He never put it down when, when I was those there. early those early videos of him, though. He was playing a Strat. I remember in the, the shop wow. we oh. had Brent Mason uh, videos, instructional videos, and he was playing a Strat. So anyway, wow, interesting. Yeah. yeah. You can anyway, ask him. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, he's a great player. Anyway, it was it was a really fun session, and I went, man, it's so much fun to play country music. You know, it's just such a blast, and uh, it's really fun to play jazz. So, I couldn't be a guy that's just in yeah. that one. You know, well, I think it's you know, you go to a blues festival and you play eighteen blues covers, and then you do one, you know, jazz instrumental. A guy will come up and say, "You're not really." 
a blues player, are you? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, want to play jazz, you know? <laughs> yeah, the purists, the purists don't interest me at all. You know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they yeah. excommunicate if you do one thing wrong. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> anyway, so, so okay. you know, the, 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 the studio scene, I mean, I would be on the road and, uh, for a month with my own band. And my wife would call and say, oh, man, you missed a week of doubles, meaning a movie date that's, you know, two sessions Monday through Friday, <laughs> two sessions a day. And that would probably pay more than my entire tour. But at some point, I just made the commitment to it saying, you know, I'd rather play in a club or a small festival or something and see the whole front row singing along to a song I wrote in my kitchen then have headphones on and doing, you know, what we call M11, which means music reel one, cut one, or song one. You know, doing another another M11 cue for a, for a film, you know. Yeah. So, even though it doesn't pay nearly as much, in the long run, it's self-satisfying. What, what about those travel hardships, you know, riding around in the van? Have you got any good stories about the mishaps uh, in Europe and riding oh, around in a van? Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah, we generally rent a Mercedes Sprinter in Europe and one here too in the states. And uh, well, that's comfortable. Um, yeah, they're cool. They're cool. They're, they're um, a two-man crew and a three-man band. Sometimes I bring a keyboard player, but it's generally about that kind of size of a tour touring party. Um, yeah, we've had some crazy stuff. We had a shakedown in Slovakia two years ago where a cop pulled us over, and then four guys in t-shirts with guns said passports please and uh, you know they didn't look official at all and then they put scales four scales under our wheels and had us back over it and then they said you're grossly overweight you owe us 350 euros fine <laughs> and uh, my uh, my tour manager who's a woman she goes now wait a minute and she called up the uh the, the, the bus rental company and said what's the maximum and they said you know 50,000 kilos and we were like 65,000 we were way overweight <laughs> so she knew she was wrong but she turned to these guys and she goes do you know who this is this is Carl Verheyen he's a member of Supertramp and they go oh they go tell you what we'll give you 100 euros and we'll give you all a CD and we'll and we'll be on our way and they go okay <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story I know. paid off she, with she, CDs you know that's I yeah, like it we're gonna she make stu- we're gonna make fans out of those guys no matter what. Right, exactly. <laughs> I like so. it. I like it. Oh, so, so equipment. So uh, I I, uh, I like those uh, LSL guitars. Uh, the guitar shop yeah. was carrying them, and we had all mm-hmm. kinds of different models. But uh, you're getting those guys to make replicas of uh, well, similar to what an old vintage guitar would be like, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The CD special is basically. I get LSL to uh, to get their lightest wood, right? And okay. Put it in a pile over there and save it for mine. And then this is a maple neck version. A pile. This pattern that's patterned after my uh, uh, my '58 Strat. And then I have the rosewood version that's patterned after more after the neck is more after my '65 Strat. And then I, you know, I adjust the claw to where, you know, I get a minor third with my G string a whole step with my B string and a half step with my E string. And there's a couple other little things like the, the back tone control goes to the back pickup. Yeah. And uh, the, this tone control goes to both of those. So there's just a few little moderate upgrades, but the main thing is that the action height is right. 
the Wang bar uh, goes to... They're going to get a plug right here. I think they're the best boutique replica type guitar that uh, I found, uh, you know, outside yeah, of maybe the most expensive uh, custom shop fenders. But uh, yeah. those... But those, I think they beat the custom shop. Well, I yeah, price-wise and, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, I'm talking about commercial guitars as opposed to... Uh, you know, it's a commercial yeah, I mean, guitar that's not priced out of this world. They're affordable. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. And they're yeah. great. The pickups are amazing. I mean, yeah, they self-wind. They have their own winding machine, and they do that. And so they were able to wind the pickups to exact specs of my 61 Strat, which is a great rock guitar. Uh -huh. That green thing. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that guitar is just a rocker, right? So yeah. uh, I said, I want these pickups. So they wound them, and it didn't sound anything like it. Then they realized they have to measure the pickups after the tone controls, you know, because the, the volume and the two tones add a little bit of resistance. So once they measured them after that, they got them pretty well exact. And uh, that's good. But yeah. then I, I like the... I got a 65 Strat too, and I like the neck pickup on that best. So they, it's a little mix and match. Is that a Sunburst Strat? I think I've seen yeah, a picture yeah. of you holding that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a, a beautiful guitar. guitar. Yeah, I know. I bought that from Norm uh, back in uh, the late '80s, and and uh, I think I paid like 2,800 bucks, and now they're selling them. He, he offered me a, a one the other day and said it's twenty eight thousand. <laughs> well, you sold me this for twenty eight hundred, and you go, see, it's a blue chip investment. You want to get another one, and that one's going to be worth fifty thousand someday, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Norm. Yeah, sure. <laughs> hey, yeah. and and you you also said uh, uh, moving to amplifiers here that the little Princeton, like a black face Princeton. Sixties, uh, yeah. perhaps, is your favorite amp? Does that still hold true? Is there something else that we should know yeah. about? Yeah, I mean, I do. I do own four of them, and uh, if I can, uh, here, let me show you. I can bring you around here. There's, there's, uh, there's two that are, that are, you know, always part, part of my studio here. You oh, see. I see. Yeah. Yeah, and there's my there's my Tremolux and Showman that I just had worked on, but. I keep I keep uh, two Princetons. Here we go. Plug you back in. Boom. I keep two Princetons in my studio all the time, ready to roll. And then I have two more in the garage that I can grab them for a for a session or something. You know, one's a yeah. These two are black face, and one out there is another black face and a silver face that has a twelve I put in when I was actually a teenager. I thought it'd be better to have a twelve, so I had a new baffle butt. Uh, baffle board cut and then years later the guys at mercury magnetics said we need a bigger transformer to run this thing and they put a beefy transformer and now that thing really you can play it with a big band so so you know you're you're talking like a real practical guy here right of all that equipment that you got right is it like a practical uh, piece of equipment for your work or are things just a fling? You know, like, oh, I got to have one of those. I got, But you're actually, it sounds to me like you're intelligently buying things because they, you get a result that you can use in a in a practical situation. So which is it? <laughs> it's much more the practical thing. I mean, for years I bought amps because I needed them for work. You know, I needed that Mesa Boogie sound to sound like this. Or, you sure. Know, or sound, you know, and then it became, I really don't need... Uh, one of those, you know, 
Mesa Boogie dual rectum on fire. <laughs> dual <laughs> rectum fire. No, I like, that, well, I like the, that's what they should have called it. They would have sold yeah, more yeah. rectum on yeah, fire. Yeah, and I don't need one of those Marshalls that, that has way too many knobs. I just need the stuff that I think sounds good and sounds like me and that I can make good tones with. buying more things that I started acquiring more things that I want to use on my records yeah and, and to sell like because after a while you know you just kind of go oh yeah I can get the sound of blink 182 I can get that sound but do I really need to own it and the answer is no as a matter of fact I remember doing a session where they said they wanted it to sound like blink 182 I called my cartridge company and I said it was probably one of those Marshall uh what's that Big beefy Marshall that all the metal guys use. Uh, they said it was probably JCM. 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 Excuse me. God. Yeah, yeah. Tongue tied. It, it was the JCM thing, and and he said we rented that and a Mesa Boogie dual rectum on fire to Blink One Eighty Two. <laughs> we'll rent you those. So they lend me the exact same amps that was done on, used on the record. So I just don't need to own them if they're they're never going to be something I put on my record. Got you. That's smart. Well, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, maybe something like a hobby. Have you got anything outside of the guitar world besides uh, playing guitars and uh, dueling around with equipment, drooling, I yeah, should say? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a serious practicer, so that takes a lot of my day. But I like to uh, wash my car. <laughs> what kind of car is it? <laughs> uh, I sold the Porsche 911 and got a Mercedes E550. Oh, so you're, you're you're getting older. You're cruising. Yeah, well, what, you know, driving into Hollywood every day, this this knee pushing the clutch was starting to ache, and I'd go on the road for five weeks and come back. My knee felt great until like three days of you figured it you know, out driving in traffic. So, so I, I like to uh, I like to barbecue stuff, grill stuff, and I like to uh, help my wife garden. That's about it. <laughs> I've got a quick I, I've got a quick gardening story for you. There was an old guy that used to live in Bustleton in West Australia. He was a licentiate British piano player. And he was the only real quality musician in the whole part of that country where I was, you know, surfing and hanging out. So I asked him one day, how would you like to do a couple of shows with me? We could do some concerts together. And he says, but what about my garden? <laughs> so he did. I, called John, I called John Helliwell, the sax player in Supertramp. He lives in, in Yorkshire, England, and I called him up one day, and I got his wife, and she goes, well, he's out in the toothbrush garden. <laughs> toothbrush so garden? I said, toothbrush garden, what's that? And she goes, oh, he'll tell you. So he gets on the phone. I go, hey, John, what's going on? And he goes, not much. And I go, what's the toothbrush garden? It was just a garden with toothbrushes in it. And that was all he told me, you know, just like they take their own toothbrushes, maybe stick them in the ground, and that's the toothbrush garden. Eccentric shit right there. <laughs> and that's what it was doing, huh? He was trying to make... <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> Grow little sticks with a bit yeah. of bristle on top of them. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Man. Well, that's so. terrific. So you said that uh, you were going to be busy over uh, the next few days. What, what are you up to these days? 
Um, well, I just got back from Nashville for doing a session. We were masked the entire time in the studio. And that wow. was pretty, pretty weird. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm having some very depressing times just uh, deleting. I had 45 things, 45 concerts between now and the end of the yeah, year. Yeah, right. 30, 34 in Europe and another 11, you know, the Culver City Music Festival and, you know, all these different little, I had a West Coast tour from Seattle down. I had to delete all that stuff. And the only gig that may still happen is my band's playing the uh, Buck Owens Crystal Palace in December in Bakersfield. Yeah, I've, I've been there. It's so great. Yeah, oh, it's it. incredible. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't so think it, people realize how uh, how how bitterly uh, repressing this whole COVID thing is with musicians. I mean, yeah. I mean, we've just been cut off at the legs. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I took I'm the sorry time, to hear that. I took the time uh, March, April, May to learn how to use the thumb pick. You know, because I've done a lot of festivals with those guys, those thumb pick guys. And, uh, you know, Tommy Emanuel, Joe Robinson, Doyle Dykes. And I've always gone, that's another life. I'm a flat pick guy. Yeah. But then I see Tommy Emanuel and Joe Robinson playing just as fast and burning with a flat pick yeah. as I do. So I go, hey, if they can do both, I should be able to do both. So I dug into it and got it down, you know. Her Herico make a flat thumb pick that looks like a regular pick. What kind of thumb pick are you using? Yeah. Well, this is a Dunlop that uh, I think Tommy gave me, and it, it's cool. You know, I, I'm starting to learn the the vibe. He probably get, gave that to you so you wouldn't succeed. You know, yeah. thinking, yeah. okay, here I can get this guy out of the picture by giving him this thumb pick. You know. Yeah. Well, what he did, <laughs> he's the exact opposite kind of guy. He's the exact guy that would say, "Hey, how you doing?" On that thumb pick I gave you. You know, he. Yeah, he's no, he's really a, a he, wonderful cat. Yeah, he's, uh, he's very good friends with Kirk Sand at the guitar shop at Laguna Beach. So uh, yeah. I, I get to hear a lot of reports about Tommy there. Yeah. yeah. Where do you live now? I live in Laguna. I, I worked at the guitar shop in Laguna Beach for years, since 1990. But on and off, you know, teaching and uh, traveling. In the 2018, I was on the road in a Johnny Cash cover band called Cashed Out. Oh, cool. And man. we just played country music to the the barns burnt basically yeah i still have uh <clears throat> i still have two of mark angus's guitars and uh they're gems aren't they yeah here's one that he made for me years ago he's made me a couple of these i think actually. i remember you coming into the shop and picking it up while i was there actually yeah yeah it's pretty cool uh, With that, we'd like to say goodbye to Carl Verheyen, who's been our guest today. Carl, thank you so much. Thank you. Man. I don't think the fun. Zoom transmission is doing you justice. We're, we're a bit uh, broken over here, but I'm going to play some of uh, your music for uh, the people out there and do you justice. I got some recordings of you, so if you don't mind. All right. Great. That, I appreciate that. Thanks for the time. And, uh, man, maybe we'll see each other in person one of these days. Fantastic. Thanks.
You're listening to Carl Verheyen on the guitar. This is a Believe podcast production. I'm John Heusenstamm, and this is The Guitar Life. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.